Welcome to Flowstars, candid conversations between Dr. Peter O'Toole and the big hitters of flow cytometry. Brought to you by Beckman Coulter at Bite Size Bio. Today on Flowstars, I'm joined by Pratip Chattopadhyay, founder of Talon Biomarkers, and we discuss why he works in a former Pilates studio. So it's this concept of, of bringing science into the community and, you know, something that hasn't existed probably since the 18 or 1900s. The joy of being a dad. One of the most um, powerful things in society that you can be a good dad to a, to a daughter, to inspire her to become what she wants to become and tackle the world on her own terms. His cooking technique. I refuse to be precise in the kitchen. I absolutely refuse. I will not look at a recipe. I will not measure things. I will not. That's why I won't bake because it's a disaster. And why he has no time for negativity. My pet peeve is when people are overly negative and look for a reason that a problem can't be solved rather than, you know, trying a solution. All in this episode of Flow Stars. Hi, I'm Peter O'Toole from University of York, and today on the Flow Stars, I'm joined by Pratip Chattopadhyay from Talon Biomarkers, before that NYU, before that NIH, and I think we'll stop there because we'll hear more about it as we go on. Pratip, how are you today? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm great, thank you. And actually, just starting on that that very long list from, from I guess, from a core sci- a government scientist through to an academic, through to a and core director through to i know we've got talent biomarkers but is it just a one startup two startups three startups? Uh, i've got i've got my hands in a few different things right now so um it's been it's been an interesting path and one you know that that you might be curious about so um so we could jump in on that i guess and, and well, like, i think it, talking about that a little bit. let's go back to where you started because i think it'd be great yeah. uh, for people to hear how you got to where you are Sure. What challenges, what difficulties, but uh, I, I shall warn you, we'll, we'll jump about quite a bit because I'll also want to know what you do at home yeah, <laughs> and uh, absolutely. what you do to relax because that sounds pretty where, intense. Where is home? Um, <laughs> you know, so lately, I mean, starting a new business, you feel like you're always uh, you're always working, but um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I was always from a young age, I was interested in um, in science and. Uh, and, you know, had thought that I was going to become a physician and uh, instead uh, chose to marry one because I didn't, uh, I wasn't smart enough to, you know, to go to medical school. Um, but, uh, but I went to the University of Virginia here in, um, in, in the U.S. And, um, and, uh, and there I got a kind of broad education in, um, in the humanities and the sciences, which was, um, which was really uh, fantastic and kind of shaped how I think about my career and, you know, and how I've engaged in chosen pathways. And, you know, and I think without realizing it, I've always chosen a path where um, I, I felt like I was uh, getting to do what I wanted to do rather than what the, the system wanted me to do um, or what was typical of the system. And, um, and I've just chased uh, you know, being excited and being happy at work. And, you know, and I think I found that early on at, at UVA when I was um, getting my undergraduate degree and I was failing miserably in the pre-med classes and, um, and just was unhappy. And I just decided that I was going to, if I was going to go to medical school, um, which was a big if, I was going to do it on my terms. And I started t- taking in these little research experiences um, in labs around UVA, around the medical school, and um, got addicted to, to lab work and just, you know, and just loved the, the independence and the um, sort of creativity that was associated with that. I had great mentors who, you know, just kind of left me alone to, you know, to do my thing and, um, and didn't have me, had me doing real work. They didn't have me, you know, washing beakers or anything like that. And that's something that still, you know, as I take on interns, I try to remember that I'm not bringing in people to label test tubes for me. I'm bringing in people to, to do science. And so, um, so anyway, so I finished up at UVA. I, um, uh, you know, decided that I wanted to go for a PhD and I wanted to stay um, 
relatively close to home. I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area. So I went to Johns Hopkins and got my Ph.D. in molecular microbiology and immunology there and focused in on HIV research. And this was a time when um, HIV was uh, was not something you lived with for your whole life. It was a, essentially a death sentence. You'd progress to AIDS and, uh, and, and succumb. This was the early 1990s and, or sorry, mid to late 1990s. Um, and, uh, and I did a really interesting project where um, we were trying to understand why, uh, why there was a specific change in the T cell compartment um, just before you uh, developed AIDS. So AIDS was defined as CD4 counts less than 200, but about a year and a half before that, your total T cell count, your CD3 T cell count, which was maintained throughout the course of infection, even in the drop in CD4 counts, you'd have an increase in CD8s and you'd maintain total T cell counts. That suddenly collapsed. That ability to maintain total T cell counts would uh, reliably collapse about a year and a half before the diagnosis of AIDS. And so my um, thesis work was centered around understanding what was driving that and um, we did uh, some in vivo labeling um, experiments with, with humans, with people, um, where we would give them deuterated glucose and look at the dividing T cells um, from different, uh, different T cell compartments. And, um, and that work was a lot of fun, other than the, you know, the typical excitement of the immunology and the labeling and all that. I got to actually chase down HIV positive people and, and recruit them for the study and consent them and write the protocols and, you know. Yeah, Not literally that. chase after them running. Come back, come back. It was them. a lot like that. So we yeah. had two, we had two cohorts at, um, at Hopkins that, that, um, that I, you know, I was involved in. One of them was the multi-center AIDS cohort study, which is a cohort of um, homosexual men who had, who were just absolutely dedicated to, um, you know, to contributing to HIV research. And those were typically, you know, people who were well off and, you know, who you didn't really have to chase the, I guess the biggest, you know, sort of problem in working with them is that you became friends with them. They wanted to like tell you about their life and they were, you know, and, um, and so you, you kind of got, engaged and just became, you know, buddies with these people, right? You'd have these, this like month long experience with them and you'd come out of it, like, you know, with, the, you know, with the best friend, you know, about all of their, um, their life and their history. And it taught me a great deal, you know, having grown up in a sort of sheltered suburban community. Um, it taught me a great deal about, uh, you know, the, the struggles that, um, that, uh, that, you know, people who, just are trying to be in love with whoever they want to love, you know, face, right? And so, um, so it was, it was definitely formative in that regard for me. Um, and then the other group that you really did have to chase was a cohort of IV drug users. And, um, and these were uh, people who were, you know, in it primarily for the, I'm, I'm sure some of them were um, certainly in it for the, the good of doing research, the, the philanthropy about it, but the, the, you know, the sort of real life, um, uh, situation of theirs dictated that they wanted money for blood draws. And, um, and, you know, you can imagine that people in those situations have, um, uh, they're hard to find, you know? And so, um, I remember there was this one guy who, um, who was, he used to call me Dr. Pratips. I wasn't a doctor yet, but he called me Dr. Pratips and you know, he pluralized my name and nicest guy in the world, charming, charming guy. And um, he called me after his infusion and said, you know, I um, really am in a bind and I, I need to have an advance on the, the money that, you know, the money for the study. And, um, and, you know, and I was young and stupid and not really street smart. And so I went to um, somebody who was smarter than I was, who was running the early HIV study. And, um, and she was like, no, no, you cannot do that. You can't just give them money from the study. You know, they have to complete the study. There's, you know, rules and regulations about this stuff. And so I went back to him. I said, no, you know, I'm sorry, we can't do it. And, um, you know, he got upset. And then the next call I get is um, from uh, the person who runs the clinic who said that he was arrested that afternoon for stealing um, something off somebody's lawn and trying to pawn it. And so, you know, I felt incredibly guilty that, you know, <clears throat> that, right, that I, you know, he ended up in jail now. He had a long criminal history anyway. So, you know, he's likely to, 
to be in trouble um, again. But um, but we actually had to draw him within 10 days of his infusion. And so the phlebotomist and I went to the Baltimore City Jail and um, she was, you know, we we're both in our 20s. You know, she's a young, whatever, 25 year old woman. And, you know, we're kind of walking in there together through the hallways of the jail. It was surreal. Um, and into the infirmary in the in the Baltimore City Jail to, to draw him. And, um, you know, it was, uh, it was quite an experience. So I had a lot of really neat experiences like that, that, you know, were, that, that shaped how I thought about people who lived under different circumstances than, than I did, you know, and, um, you know, I certainly learned a whole lot of immunology in my PhD, but, you know, what stuck with me was, um, and HIV, of course, but what stuck with me was um, learning about different types of people and, and, you know, the, the settings, how the settings that, that we live in and our circumstances that, that surround our upbringing and our, um, you know, our sort of young life really can impact and change, um, you know, how we view the world and how we interact with it and our perceived success in it, you know. So it was really, it was really quite formative. So I, I, I'm going to come on to something different in a moment. Just a very quick question. Yeah. When you were the age of 10, uh-huh. in that sort of age, what did you want to be at that age? I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> so, okay. um, yeah, and it was, uh, it was because um, I, was, I was incredibly uh, enamored with the Voyager uh, mission. Um, which was, you know, around, around that time. And, uh, well, it's, just, you know, obviously kind of still ongoing, but, you know, I was fascinated, fascinated by Voyager 1 and 2, and so I wanted to be an astronaut. But, you know, there was no realistic way that an Indian kid from a, you know, suburb of, you know, Washington, D.C. was going to end up being an astronaut. So That might no longer be the case, I would hope, I would like to think. Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, I didn't, I didn't have any of the other interests. I was just fascinated, I think, with the idea of exploration more than anything else, you know. Um, so I, I don't think I fit the mold at all for an astronaut. But So I think, is it, I think you've already said at the age of 18, you, you wanted to be a physician, but you then became a flow cytometrist, which is, uh, I, I, I will come back to that as well. Uh, here you are today. What would you, if you could do any job in the world, what would you do today? I would either be a lawyer or a journalist, likely a journalist, um, which actually makes me incredibly proud because my daughter is an awesome writer and has, uh, she's 16 now and she's started writing for the local, uh, the local magazine about, you know, her experiences as a young person and in high school and looking at colleges and stuff like that. And so she's a little cub reporter and that's exactly what I would have killed to be. And I remember having, a conversation with my parents when I was, um, you know, when I was uh, in, in my senior year of, of college, fourth year of college. And, um, and I said to them, you know, I think I want to go to grad school in journalism. And they were like, but, you know, that's not something that, you know, Indian kids do. That's not a proper, um, you know, a proper uh, career path. And, you know, it was all about being a scientist or an engineer or a doctor and, you know, and, and that was it. And that was the mindset back then. And I'm so glad that, you know, now we see so much representation, you know, in the media and, uh, and especially in the news media for, you know, people, um, people who, whose parents probably pushed them to be uh, scientists and engineers and doctors. So I'm amazed you, you just said, what you'd like to be today if you could do anything. And here yeah. you are with two startup companies. I was kind of expecting you to say oh, uh, that, and then I was going to come on to what you'd like to be when you retire, and that would have been your answer. But no, you just, that's fascinating. So actually you're following something, I guess, where your talent is, where your skill sets are, rather than if you could do anything in the world. So, you know, it's interesting. I've, I've thought about this a lot. And, um, and what it boils down to is that I like stories. I like to tell a story and in science, especially what we're doing, you know, especially the kind of science that oftentimes, I guess we as flow cytometrists are involved in, right? You run a core, it's a series of short stories in a lot of ways, you know, um, where you're engaged in a question and then you, you know, you have an arc to solve that question, come up with an answer and, you know, and then you move on to the next thing, right? And, um, and so there is that, that kind of motivation of, I wanna tell a 
story and that's why I'm in it um, is, is probably what's driving me. Now, having said that, um, you know, I will kind of, I guess, freely admit and hopefully no future job people will, uh, you know, <laughs> will be, uh, will be disappointed by this, but, you know, I think I maybe lack um, an interest in going too deeply into a question, you know, like getting at the molecular mechanisms of a particular pathway that's a cellular or biochemical pathway and spending my whole career investigating that seems like the most boring thing I could ever choose to do. And, and so, you know, so it's almost like my whole career and that might've been why I was driven towards technology development, because with technology development, what you're doing essentially is you, you have an idea and then you work through it and you, you have a solution to that idea. You apply it and then you kind of move on. And it was a frustration of mine at NIH that, you know, that I developed these technologies and show the first application of it and then kind of move on from it. But in a lot of ways, that was what I was. That's who I was, you know, and I want to move to the next story, to, to the next, um, to the next, uh, yeah, I guess the next story, you know. So, so those innovations were things such as 18 color experiments, I think, uh, mm -hmm. quantum dots, flow cytometry, uh, the brilliant dyes, flow cytometry, quite a lot of very, at the start, of things that now people use as commonplace. Yeah. Uh, so it must have been exciting. How, how exciting was it? You know, must have some confidence this is going to work. You know, it's not like yeah. some hypothetical science where will it work, won't it work? You kind of, you kind of know it's going to work, but you've got to make it work. Yeah. So, you know, it's... um. It's, it's interesting how a lot of that stuff came, came to be, you know, so um, with the, with the brilliant violets, for example, um, you know, uh, a, a friend of mine, a colleague at BioLegend had been talking to, um, had been talking to the, uh, the folks who developed brilliant dyes and, and BioLegend was looking at them and, um, and was working closely with them and, um, and, uh, and, I think it was at an ISAC meeting where, um, you know, she was like, oh, I want to introduce you to, to Brent. And, you know, the Kelly Lunston was the person and she's like, yep. I want to introduce you to um, Brent Gaylord. And, um, you know, it was a really sort of stupidly simple conversation. You know, it was like, I'd love to test them out. He's like, okay, we'd love to have you test them out. And, um, and he sent us a conjugate. And um, at the time we were using, um, uh, what was it off of that channel? It was Pacific Blue and Cascade Blue was the one before that. So Cascade Blue and Pacific Blue were the common dyes off of that channel. And they were typically, you know, they were well resolved, but they were pretty dim. Yeah. And so, um, so I did a simple titration and I was astounded at how bright they were. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is an incredible dye. And I just went into Mario's office and, you know, I said, hey, you know, I got this new dye material and um, and, uh, and this is what it looks like. And it was like, holy crap, that's pretty awesome. And so, you know, that got us started working with, um, with Brent a lot more. And that was a, that was a wonderful relationship because he's an awesome guy, but, you know, as the brilliance, uh, developed and were purchased by BD, you know, that actually was the core and the basis for doing the 30 parameter flow work. Um, and so, you know, uh, it's, I guess how you get into it and, you know, a lot of times it's just, um, it's just networking and it's, you know, it's just having exposure to new things, being willing to try them and, you know, trusting that, that people have, people are bright and talented and have interesting ideas and, you know, and, and getting, getting on board to the right train. So. So I'm going to, actually, what was, what was Mario like to work for? Or work? Uh, awesome. Oh, awesome. <laughs> Yeah, he was, he's, um, so, so I, uh, you know, I, I can, I can tell a whole lot of stories, but Mario is, um, he's not a micromanager, which is just incredible and awesome. And um, he's in an interesting, in a sort of understated way, he's inspiring. Um, you know, he doesn't walk into the lab and rah, 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 and, you know, but, um, but it's by example you know, and so, um, so I would, you know, I've always, I've always thought of myself um, as someone who 
recognizes and tries to emulate good leaders. And, you know, and I can, I, and I'm good at choosing good leaders to, you know, sort of follow and, and emulate. And he was so, he is so awesome in that regard. And, you know, and um, I, I can't, I mean, I can't say enough good things about him, but, um, but part of the reason that um, so much flow cytometry has come out of that lab um, is that, uh, is that Mario had the vision to, to build a group that was focused on the interface between technology development and using that technology. And, and I think more than anyone else, he has figured out how to, how to do the whole pipeline. And, and I so look up to and respect that, that, you know, that there's technical development that happens in that lab, but there's also application and, you know, real contribution to, um, to virology and immunology and, and, and vaccine work that is, you know, is, uh, is fundamental too. And that's, that's something that is really, really hard to do because so many of us are either, you know, technical developers or, um, or biologists, I guess, you know, or I mean, certainly we all consider ourselves biologists, but certainly we, you know, there's kind of two spectrums and he's really managed to, um, to bridge those. Part of the reason that he's managed to bridge those also is because of really great people in his lab. Um, you know, the, the postdocs that I worked with were awesome. Um, and, uh, and they, they've, you know, moved on to successful careers um, in their own right. Um, and then Steve Perfetto has been running the, the flow core there and, you know, is, is Mario's um, right hand and um, is just, you know, one of the sharpest people in terms of making this stuff work in a very practical way. And so, um, so we had, I always like to think that we had magic while I was there and Mario still has that magic, I, you know, it's not, but, you know, I'm removed from it. And so, you know, I miss it a lot, but there was, there was a certain magic in that lab. Um, that was just awesome. So I've got to ask, because it's bugging me now. Yeah. Are you in a lab or in a lounge? Because I'm looking, so if, you, if you're listening to this, I'll just describe that we seem to have some sort of flow hood of instruments over on the left with a water chiller box. But on your right, it seems to be uh, pictures. There's a, there's a nice coat, comfy chair in there. The, the door into the room looks more like a house door than a lab door. Where yeah. on earth are you? So, um, so that's a great question. I'm, I'm in a wonder, a fantastic wonderland where lab and lounge meet. Um, no, so, uh, so I was, you know, I was, um, as we were developing technology in Mario's lab, I had always felt like I would love to have my own company that applies this technology and uses it for, um, you know, for correlative work to, to discover biomarkers to, um, to, to really apply it um, systematically. And, um, and as I was leaving Mario's lab, I was daydreaming about that um, in, in uh, lots of different ways. But I decided that, you know, I hadn't had any real experience um, uh, leading a group, um, even though I, you know, I certainly um, supervised some people in Mario's lab, but it's different. You know, you've always got Mario. Um, as a safety net um, and a very effective safety net. And so, um, so I felt like that was a limitation in my development. And, um, and I didn't have the appetite for, for the risk of being an entrepreneur. And so, um, so I thought, well, you know, let me do what I really want to do, which is apply this technology and focus in on that. And we'll figure out where to go from there. So I landed at NYU. Um, at, at Langone at the medical center and, um, and ran, a, ran a program that was uh, dedicated ostensibly to high parameter um, work, not just with flow cytometers, but also with um, single cell sequencing and, um, and molecular cytometry, the ABSeq, the CiteSeq technologies that are, that are out there. And, um, and the core was ostensibly focused on that, but um, 
but we also had duties um, around cell processing and Luminex and things that I was not interested in at all. And um, and so you know we we turned quite a business in cell processing and Luminex and and made it work for the institution, but the demands kept growing and growing and growing, and it was crowding out the the time and resources to do high parameter um, single cell work and um, and couldn't hire additional staff. There were all kinds of you know issues with my time there. Um, but in the process, I started thinking, well, I'm going to prepare myself for you know, becoming my own entrepreneur and, you know, and feeling strong about that. And I felt like I checked off the box about, you know, mentoring and leading people. I, I had one student go to UCSF for grad school. I had another student who started up a second startup that I'm involved in um, that we spun out of NYU and, um, and, uh, and a couple of other employees who, you know, have, have done well and landed, landed in places that are good and right for them. And, you know, I felt I did right by them. Um, and then I recognized that I was doing sort of all of this service work for the institution and not for myself. And increasingly it became that the service work, the demanding piece of the service work, the loudest piece was, um, uh, cell, cell processing and Luminex especially. And I was like, you know, this is just not a use of my skill set, you know? And so, um, so uh, I decided to leave and, um, and pursue these kinds of different startup opportunities. I had three entities, two of which that I was leading and one that, um, that I was just, you know, sort of a consultant for. And, um, and decided to just drop out and you know do do those things, um, focus on those I, those two ideas and and doing the consulting work. And so um, so one of the ideas was this company, Talon Biomarkers. Um, the reason that we're Talon Biomarkers is because I'm inspired by birds of prey and their talons, and they're so precise in being able to pick out um, their prey from a sea of other things and do it rapidly and incredibly, um, forcefully. And I think with high parameter technology, that's exactly what we're doing, right? We are going into a sea of cell types and finding the cell type that matters in a particular disease condition or drug therapy and identifying it with incredible precision. And so that's why it's called Talon Biomarkers. That's essentially what we're doing. We're, um, we're, a, a contract research organization that, um, does this work? It's um, I, I wanted to reimagine to get to your question. I wanted to reimagine how we do science, um, and in part, this was largely motivated by wanting to be close to my home. You know, um, so I live in this small town in New Jersey that's beautiful. It's um, sort of idyllic. It's like a New England village. It's um, you know, small and hilly, and it's a wonderful place to, to live, to raise kids, and, um, and, and be in the outdoors is just spectacular here. Um, so I wanted to be close to home, and um, I thought about how I do science and how I've done science all my life. I've done it in big, sterile buildings on campuses, on sort of, you know, in environments that were, um, were, were not, uh, kind of community oriented. And so I um, opened this place up in a former Pilates studio in the center of town. That's why there are all these mirrors around here. Um, and, uh, and I checked with the local, uh, the local zoning authorities, you know, could I do lab work here? Uh, did my due diligence about, you know, um, you know, having a hood, there's a hood in the back there. Um, and so essentially we're in a storefront in the center of town. Um, and the the sort of front half that's on my left side, yep. I guess you would say, is is the seating area where you know where when we have clients visit or when we have um, when I have people from the community visit, we hang out there. And then the the rest of the area, and there's a little bit more space in the back there, is um, is all scientific. And you know we've got a PCR room, we've got a hood, we've got a freezer area, um, and it's. Um, and what's wonderful about it is that we're right here in the center of town, taking up a storefront that was empty before, you know, so we're contributing to the community in that way into the business community here. Um, but we're also exposing the community to, to science and, you know, and it's not happening in an industrial park that's completely removed 
I'm not, you know, the guy who's telling them whether the vaccine is going to work or not, or lying to them about the vaccine. It suddenly becomes a lot more real, what, you know, what science does and, you know, and their kids can, you know, walk by here when they're going to elementary school or the high schools um, down the road. My daughter walks over to the lab um, in the afternoon and hangs out with me, which is just, you know, precious time. And so it's this concept of, of bringing science into the community and, you know, something that hasn't existed probably since the 18 or 1900s. But, um, you know, uh, I, I really believe that we can start to make a difference by um, in, in how people are perceiving science in the local, um, in, in the broader community, if we're in it. So, so if it's kind of, so it's kind of a hybrid lounge lab, yeah. how good is a sound system in there? In terms of like, music. you must have music in there. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, the sound system's not great. I have to, I have to work on that a little bit. I've got these two cheap speakers from, uh, but you know, that's we can we can amp that up. But you know, we're on a startup budget here, so you know, let's get a few more contracts and then somebody can fund a, a proper uh, Sonos or Bose speaker system here. You know, uh, what's what's your music of choice? Uh, I listen to almost everything I have to say. Um, so in the car, I am stuck with what my wife and daughter will listen to, which is top 40. Um, so, uh, so I am, you know, I'm, I'm a huge BTS fan, oddly enough, um, because of them. So, you know, so K-pop is, uh, is fascinating to me, <laughs> but, um, but no, you know, other than that, um, jazz blues, and I, I'll even listen to classical music. I listen to almost everything I used to play the violin when I was a kid and my parents were actually quite musical. They were, they sang Indian music. And so, um, so I have a really, um, you know, that was an important part of my growing up. And um, because of that, I think I have a very eclectic taste. I, I don't think I've asked anyone what their darkest secret is, but now you've just confessed your K-pop. I might bring that. Yeah, in. exactly. I mean, you know, one day I was, I, I posted on Facebook that I was, I was in here, I was doing a, doing a titration. And I was singing a Jonas Brothers song and the, um, you know, with the, with the uh, radio and, um, and the FedEx guy walks in. So, you know, that was, uh, that was a shame. I'm not a sucker for him. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so uh, it was, uh, you know, it was embarrassing, but, you know, only so, this is the big leap to, to leave the comfort of a, a, a regular salary, a safe, yeah. secure good salary to jump out. I presume you got bench capitalists. Um, no. So, well, sort of. So, you know, so how I, I started this is kind of um, interesting. There was, there's one um, contract with a, um, a pharmaceutical company that, that sort of buys up assets of, of other companies and then develops them themselves and spins out um, their own subsidiaries for them. And so um, so we have this contract that uh, basically is to do some work in autoimmune disease, and it's a huge project. Um, and what they've done is they've split that money into um, $200,000 to prove that I can do this work, you know, um, on 10 healthy donors and to start up the lab. And then um, a million dollar investment, and then a million dollar contract. And so we have, um, so with that 200K, um, you know, I essentially started up this operation. Now a cytometer and a Rhapsody, you know, um, would have eaten up most of that. So fortunately we've got some um, really great relationships with, with both BD and Thermo um, and have, um, you know, sort of collaborative relationships that are keeping me from paying less price for those things. Um, but, uh, but that's how I've started. And, you know, I never would have imagined that activation energy is really high, you know, especially for someone like me who's uh, risk averse, you know, I, I never would have thought that I could have equipped a lab and, you know, and, done the certification work with, with $200,000, but it's, um, you know, it's incredibly possible and, um, and sort of empowering to do it outside of a university situation, because suddenly you don't have to deal with, um, 
you know, legal looking at some document for two years, you know, um, you don't have to deal with purchasing, you know, you can buy stuff off of Amazon and eBay and, you know, and, um, and, and there's, there's something joyous about not having that oversight, which is just fantastic or bureaucracy, I guess. is the way. So, so it's really sunk on the or set up, not sunk. It's, it's really, the foundation is that contract. Uh, with with the character of a bigger contract at the end of that, but exactly it must be. And, and in the meantime, sorry, sorry, go. On. Yeah, sorry. And in the meantime, um, you know, without really even advertising or you know telling people I'm out there and have started this up, um, you know, through through kind of my network of connections, I got three or four more contracts. And so, you know, they're not of that size, but it's enough to, you know, it's enough almost that if that first contract didn't work out, I'm not going to lose, I'll lose a little bit of sleep, but, you know, I'm not going to lose too much sleep over it. So, you know, now having said that, I want that first contract to work out. I'm dedicated. Yeah, no, no, that, that, that's obvious. That, that's you know, right. Uh, but, you know, it's, um, it was surprising to me how much business could be had out there at this early stage. And, um, and and that the people who are, you know, those additional clients have the, that faith in me says something um, about, honestly, it, it says it's probably it's underappreciated, but it says something about the training I received from, you know, growing up in science, right, that I know how to do this work well, and people have faith in me because I can communicate that. And that's thanks to my PhD advisor. That's largely thanks to Mario. So, um, you know, uh, it's, um, and, and to my experiences at NYU. So, um, so there's, there's a leap of faith that people are taking in me that I'm really grateful for. Yeah. Don't just put it all there. Cause actually you, you had to have developed those networks and those relationships with the companies that are helping sponsor equipment in or at low cost or helping. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They at the same time have trust in you knowing that, you know, if it blossoms, you'll be buying equipment and they'll yeah, they'll get exactly. the money back and that, 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 that's good investment so the pump priming you in that respect yeah. you know you were quite defensive about doesn't mean i don't want the first contract to work yeah. and i'm sure the company uh the, that first company that that gave you that seed corn funding to get going uh they will want you to diversify and be doing the work yeah. for the other companies because it means if their if their demand goes down you'll be there when it picks back up again. Yeah, exactly. And they and they also, they're getting, you know, the interest, it's, you know, I probably shouldn't talk about these things, but, you know, in the interest of helping people who are, you know, getting started or thinking about these transitions, you know, they've also got an equity interest in the company. And, and anytime anyone makes an investment in you, they're going to expect, you know, um, a return on that investment, a potential return on that investment with with equity. And, um, and so, uh, so, you know, so there's certainly, they have a motivation as well too. You're absolutely right about that to, to see me do other things and, you know, and keep the business going. So currently, is it just yourself or do you have? Yeah, it's really just me. Um, so, you oh, know. Yeah, 200,000 and you can turn it around. Absolutely, it will grow from that. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, that meant that for a project, so we just finished a project. We, I keep saying we, but it's the royal we, it's just me. Um, you know, uh, company, we. yeah, exactly. So, um, so we just finished a project where, um, where the client was um, looking at a vaccine for brain cancer and they um, needed some data for a, um, a presentation at, uh, at an international meeting um, last week. And, um, and so we turned that project around very quickly. But what it meant for me was literally 18 hour days of, you know, pipetting. I mean, doing everything, right? Doing, uh, preparing for the project, um, doing the pipetting, and then, um, you know, doing all the analysis work as well. And, um, and so it was really a one-man show. And it's been a while since I've done, you know, um, lab work like that. It's been a few years. But, you know, you, you get back on the bicycle and, you um, and I found I was, you know, effective and happy doing it. Now, is is that a sustainable proposition? No, I'm not gonna, you know, run this like a, um, like a one man, you know, um, a food cart somewhere. You know, um, you know, it's uh, I'm I'm looking to hire and I'm looking for, um, you know, for really someone to be sort of a my right hand here and um, and. 
you know, that'll, that'll come hopefully soon. Um, but until then, it's not, it's not terrible to, to do this. And, and, you know, we got that data out. It was really well received. The client was really happy. I was thrilled with it. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, um, it's just, it's, you know, you realize that you're on a journey, right? And I was talking about stories. And, and so, you know, this was a, a story that was the first story in, you know, our longer story and in the series, basically, right? And that first story, I really wanted to be a success and I really wanted to feel like it was my own. And, you know, the most tangible way to feel that is to, you know, stimulate, do peptide stimulations and, you know, and, and, and put the, you know, put the tubes on the instrument yourself. And so, um, so yeah. What did your family make of this? Because it's a bit, again, it's a big move. It's, and the family is also, it's yeah. part of the collective. Um, I think, uh, so I, I have a, I have a, I'm incredibly fortunate to have a really supportive um, spouse and she's um, absolutely amazing about this. You know, um, she, when I was mulling, uh, you know, starting up my own company, I required a bunch of sort of metrics of, you know, learn this, make sure I have this in place, make sure I have that in place. That's, that's who I am. And she, you know, sort of harangued me that, you know, you, um, you've been thinking about this enough, just do it, you know, just jump in there and just do it. And um, so I, you know, I have to give her credit for, for, you know, pushing me out the, uh, it's almost like, you know, um, what is it? Uh, parachuting, right? You need to, I needed somebody to push me out. And so, um, so she pushed me out of the plane and, you know, and I'm, I, and I have to say, to be realistic about this stuff, you know, um, we couldn't have done this 10 years ago. Um, you know, we didn't have a financial situation. She's, she's been successful in her career and, you know, and that's helping, um, you know, uh, bake the bread at home and keep, you know, that's how helping keep food on the table at home, basically, you know. Um, and so we have, we have some great advantages that allow us at this stage of life to, you know, to kind of um, allow me to chase this. And, and it's always worked that way in our, in our uh, relationship. So I fully anticipate that, you know, um, 10 years down the line, she's going to leave her you know, job as CMO of, you know, of a biotech company. And she's going to, um, she's going to want to go off on her own, do her own thing, whether it's, you know, making soup or, you know, crafting or something like that. And, you know, I'm going to have to figure out a way to support that. So, and I will. Yeah. So, so moving off that a little bit, who's been your inspiration inside work? Um, so I have for, for the longest time, my two uh, inspirations were uh, were Mario and Gary Nolan, um, because I thought that um, they both are incredible at seeing the power of technology. Gary, in particular, um, knows how to um, then turn that into not just application, but into business. And, um, and both of them have had amazing contributions to science. And so, you know, and, and they're in areas that are, um, you know, sort of familiar to me, right, that are, that are immediately yeah. adjacent or in, in my field. Um, so I would say that they are the, the two, two biggest inspirations to me, I think. Uh, yeah, I, I, yeah, well, well-leading scientists. Uh, so actually... Yeah. We've done one of these with, with Gary. I've yet to get Mario to accept. Uh, <laughs> I needed to leave the NHS for legal reasons before he would, uh, before he would do that, I think. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. That's it. Why is it my face goes so red when this comes on? Anyway, <laughs> what about outside of work? Who inspires you outside of work? Um, I, I think my, you know, I, it's, these are hard questions because, you know, you sound, I don't know if you sound arrogant making famous people your inspiration, but I, I guess that's how you get inspired, right? Um, so so I, yeah, I would say that Obama is one of my biggest inspirations. And, um, and you know, and you, you don't know what, you know, the real Barack Obama is, right? You know, you just, what you see. But, you know, from what I see, I see someone who is a dedicated family man, who's balanced his 
um, relationship with his with his daughters and is a dad to daughters, which I think is just sort of the one of the most um, powerful things in society that you can be a good dad to a to a daughter to inspire her to become what she wants to become and tackle the world on her own terms and um, and so that that sort of dedication and devotion to um, to family while still leading a highly successful and and you know and sort of achievement oriented career is amazing to me the other thing that um, that inspires me about him is that uh, he's a very measured person and um, and you know there the the you know, there's so many attacks in, in politics and, you know, but it always felt to me like he was above those attacks and that, you know, that there wasn't, there was a, there was an aspect of modicum to how he responded to those things and restraint, restraint is it, you know, and there's incredible power in restraint. You know, if you can focus your mind to address what is the most important issue at hand in your life and ignore all the noise and all the barbs without, you know, getting into, um, getting into the toilet or getting into the gutter with people, um, no matter how tempting it is, that, that strikes me as an amazing trait. And, um, and that, that's one of the things I admire the most about him. So you mentioned how he, you know, with his children and everything else, how do you balance your work life balance? And what, what hobbies do you do outside of work? So, um, so the work-life balance is, has always been a, a, an interesting challenge. Um, we, uh, you know, my, so my wife is a physician and um, work-life when she was um, training, you know, through uh, residency and fellowship was basically all about, you know, her being there, being present when she could for, for life you know, for family. And then me picking up the slack. And, um, and that that was kind of how, you know, how it worked. And, um, and because of that, I remind myself as painful as some of those times picking up the slack was. Um, and sometimes I was resentful about it, honestly. Um, you know, but I've developed this incredible relationship with our daughter because of that. And, you know, and, um, and that's something that is, is lifelong that, you know, and I never, I never knew how important it was to me to be a father and how, you know, hopefully good a dad I've been, you know, I, I never like sort of could have conceived of that before, you know, it was, it was never one of my goals, you know, it wasn't up there astronaut dad, and I could have cared less about that. So, you know, so that having that as an important thing in, in my life is, um, is the, is the outcome of, you know, of the sacrifice that came from the work-life balance. And so I always remind myself that there's a, there's a good outcome when it feels like that balance is, is skewed. The other thing that I remind myself about is that, um, you know, we made a lot of decisions about where we were gonna be based on her training early on. And then, um, you know, when it came to me moving to NYU because of the, the great opportunity at NYU, um, there was no question or hesitation on her part. And she was the biggest cheerleader for that. And so that's, that's the balance, right? You know, you, you maybe um, miss out on an opportunity earlier in your career, but you can take one later in your career. Um, and, uh, and she had a lot to lose by moving up here, but she, you know, she did. And, um, and it turned out to be a success for her as well. And so, you know, so it kind of worked out. So, um, you know, and then the, the the sort of you know mundane day to day activity of of home. I mean, we still fight about the laundry and who's going to cook dinner, and you know that that's like that would have happened even if we didn't have. Who uh, cooks? It's most well. Who cooks well is her. Um, who cooks poorly, but you know gets something on the table is me. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that sounds like when it's cooked well, it takes a long time by the sounds of it. 
No, no, actually, she's amazing. I mean, she comes from a family of people who cook incredibly. Um, I, my mom's an incredible cook, but I did not get any of those genes. And so, um, so you know, right now we're going through this transition where she's taken on this position, um, and uh, and you know, it's a new job. She's she's chief medical officer, so she's in charge of the um, strategy there. And um, and you know, it's it's busy. So I'm having to take on some, you know, some of the cooking responsibilities and, you know, and the, and the laundry and stuff like that. It's a, it's a pain, but, um, you know, it is what it is. And then when I was busy pulling 18 hour days, thankfully she was, um, taking a little vacation between her jobs. So it ended up working out well, um, you know, eventually it's going to catch up to us, but we'll figure out a way we always have. So, so, so I'm going to ask what's your signature dish. <laughs> so, um, I don't really have a signature dish. Um, so one of the things that I do is I, I'm so precise in the lab, right? You know, it's like, I'm looking at pipette tips and I'm right, you know, this was, we, we all are like that as scientists. I refuse to be precise in the kitchen. I absolutely refuse. I will not look at a recipe. I will not measure things. I will not, that's why I won't bake because it's a disaster. If yeah, you don't yeah, yeah. Know baking, right? <laughs> And so I will basically, you know, everything is just an in the moment experience, what we have, what, you know, what's in the house, what I feel like making, what I feel like eating and to hell with everyone else. And, um, and oftentimes that means that I am improvising, you know, completely. Uh, the other day I made a um, kimchi stew, which was fantastic actually, but um, uh, you know, I have to give myself credit for that. Just it say really, yourself. Yeah. yeah, it was really good. Um, but you know, I like I like to cook Asian food for sure. Um, and uh, and I will tell you a funny story about that. So one of the things I do is, you know, when it when it turns out good, my wife will be like, "Oh, you know, this is this is really good." You know, did you uh, did you follow a recipe? And I used to say, "No, of course not." Now I make up a story associated with it right and so you know so i uh, the other day i made um I, I essentially made like some beef stew with noodles and i called it um i called it senegalese summer stew and um and she was like oh really and so i went this long thing i was like yeah you know i read about it it's it's really interesting and so and i have no experience with west african i don't know anything about Senegal or anything like that. I was like, you know, in the summer they make this because the the, the cattle typically are older. And so, you know, so the, the meat has a different kind of flavor to it and texture. And so you can replicate that, you know. And so I went on and on. And inevitably, as I'm telling these, I will, I have a tell, I will smirk a little bit. And she's like, you're lying. You totally just threw things in a pot. <laughs> and so, um, so she's on to me. So there's no Senegalese summer stew anymore. Be a soldier of vision. It's beautiful yes, vision exactly. to start with, <laughs> which explains why the food tastes so bad. But hey, you got to love it because of the story, no? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, you know, just because your taste buds don't understand it, right? You know, it's, it's right. <laughs> It's, it's a cultural, it's an acquired cultural taste. So. And, and only the people in the back of your mind that you just made up fictionally would like it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay, so are you a tea or coffee person? Uh, really neither, honestly. More Diet Coke, but, um, but coffee. Okay. Uh, more coffee person, yeah. Chocolate or cheese? Sorry? Chocolate or cheese? Oh, geez, both. I don't, I don't know why people would choose between the two. No, definitely there's a reason. <laughs> I totally just, again, this is an acquired cultural taste. <laughs> Mac or PC? Uh, Mac, yeah. Early I will, I will buy PCs occasionally, buy Windows-based computers occasionally. I switch between Androids and iPhones for my phones just so I feel like I can keep up i'm desperately concerned that i'm gonna grow old and like need my daughter's help to do simple things on the computer so yeah welcome to our world early bird or night owl night totally a night owl night owl I, I can't stand the morning tv or book tv and and really really bad tv too. well see that was my next question go on what is your tv vice so um so it's the uh it's the legal shows like um so if more serious legal shows like like um, 
you know, like the courtroom dramas type yeah. things, you know, so, so, um, so very interested in that. Um, gotten really interested in true crime and I'm worried that if anyone looks at my browsing history and my wife has an accident, you know, I'm going to be the first person they look at. Um, uh, but then beyond that, um, I, you know, so you guys are in the UK, I'm sure you have things like this, but, um, but, you know, idiot people will go on TV and try to resolve their idiot dispute in front of a judge who is usually an actor, or, you know, somebody yeah, who yeah. had some legal credibility at some point in their life, but is now making tons of money, you know, entertaining people, right? So these types of shows, um, I just, I, you know, just devour. I will, I will eat them like candy. I, I think you just beat my TV vice. That is, yeah. <laughs> Pretty bad, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, especially the one where people go on and confess their things and get a judge. Uh, yeah, no. Oh yeah, I mean there was there was one guy who was he cheated on his on his uh, wife or girlfriend or whatever they were going to get married. It's like a like a court for you know deciding if the relationship should go forward, which is such a stupid thing to go to court about. But um, but he said that the reason that he cheated was that. Um, in society, there's a ratio of five women women for one man. And so he had no choice. He was just like stuck with, you know, the the population ratio. And I was like, where does he get this from? So first of all, it's a brilliant defense. Um, but secondly, it's like so wrong. You know, I mean, you can count people on the street and you won't come up with a five to one ratio of women to men. So, so you're working out with your browsing history, how to kill people have an affair and how to justify it and defend yes, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, but I love my wife dearly. <laughs> I love the way you laugh. Is that your tell? You just said that, <laughs> then you gave your tell away. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what, what's your favorite movie? My favorite movie. Um, so, uh, fatal attraction. Don't. No, it's not, yeah, it's, not, it's not fatal attraction. I am, I'm just a sucker for courtroom stuff. And so, um, so uh, um, A Few Good Men is probably the one that I end up watching, you know, that I will always, I will, I will always watch, my wife laughs at me because if A Few Good Men is on TV, I will be watching that. If um, uh, Scarface is on TV, I'll watch that. Yep. And if, um, Saturday Night Fever is on TV. I will watch that. And so, you know, I, I'm not like a, I love movies, but I'm not, you know, I'm not particularly artistic about it or, or anything like that. So I don't have a deep answer about, you know, what's your favorite movie. It's just it's, stuff that I like to watch. You mentioned Saturday Night Fever. You've been to Isaac, obviously, plenty of times. What's your dance floor moves like? I've never, I've, I usually don't stay for the party, honestly. That's a work-life balance thing, actually. You know, it's you're just- You're on conference. It's different. Yeah. I mean, I don't think, I I can't remember if I went to the, so the um, the Vancouver one that I chaired, I don't remember going to the, to the after, you know, the party at close. Um, you know, and part of it is that you, you, you know, you kind of want to be back with your family, you know? I mean, do, do you really want to see me do that, you know, or do I want to be back home with my wife and daughter, you know? I mean, I guess you want to see me try to dance, but I mean, well, we need you know, to that's do. not something I want to do. So. <laughs> okay, uh, we are very nearly up to time, which is incredible. God, what's your bad habit? What's your worst bad habit? Uh... My worst bad habit is probably getting interested in lots of different things and um, and then starting them up and, you know, and running out of time to pursue them. And I think that's become the bad habit lately. Um, just uh, just not not following through on on new endeavors that I'm really legitimately excited about or taking too much time for me to follow through on those things. So um so yeah, and there's a little bit of procrastination in there. Okay. And and courtroom shows are probably also a bad habit that I should give up, but yeah. <laughs> well, nice time. Yeah. What's your pet hate? My pet hate, like pet peeve type thing? Yeah, well, what annoys you? Someone else either what annoys you in world or about people or what's your pet hate? Um I uh that's a good question. Um drives me absolutely insane. Um, 
So really mundane level, we get a lot of junk phone calls and junk mail. And, you know, it drives me unnaturally insane. Um, you know, uh, so, so that's, that's certainly um, a pet peeve, just junk in my life, you know. Um, and when it comes to people, I think um, I, I don't, I, I value um, people who are very real about, you know, and, and I value positivity. So, you know, so my pet peeve is when people are overly negative and look for a reason that a problem can't be solved rather than, you know, trying a solution out. Yeah. Give, give me a solution, not a problem. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. And so finally, finally, what do you think the next challenges? What's the next big thing coming out in flow cytometry, in science, or just the next big challenge that has to be met? Uh this is a, a great question. I think um, I think the next big challenge centers around making something of the data that we can collect. So, you know, so high parameter work is um, is accessible now and and feasible for for everyone. It's not just you know um, me having access to special equip custom equipment in Mario's lab. It's um, it's everywhere now, and so we're collecting incredible amount of data. The question really is, um, is not so much is that data good, but what are we going to use that data for? And, um, and are we going to maximize? And it's not a data question. It is really an experiment and study question. It's a biology question. So it's, this is not really, there's no informatics solution to this. This is about us thinking about how we use the information that we glean. And right now we glean a ton of information and we use only a fraction of it, and um, and um, and I think part of the problem is that um, it, it's not it's not just a problem with not having the right tools. I think everybody just thinks that you know there's there's going to be some magic bioinformatic algorithm that will you know suddenly be the 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 solution to this. And you know I don't think that there's just one solution to it, or that it just lies in the informatics. It's um, it's all of us thinking smartly um, in our domains and coming up with new ways to use and maximize that information. So I have to ask, because you, you haven't given a shout out to it and it's only right to give you a chance to give it a shout out. you got your startup company, but you said you had two. Uh, one yeah, so, What's the so other one? A, yeah, so we've got, so when I was at NYU, one of the, one of the things that um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud of other than the work we did um, in, uh, in various cancer settings and, you know, and understanding the immunology that was underlying them was, uh, was that we did come up with new tools for, um, for the high parameter um, ecosystem. Um, so one of the new tools that we came up with was Color Wheel to help with experimental design. We licensed that to BD. Um, and then there uh, is a data analysis platform that we developed that's called Terraflow that's rooted in combinatorics. It's rooted in the idea of um, looking at all of the Boolean combinations of markers that, that we measure, and then identifying um, the populations that differ the most across patient groups, and doing that in a, with a kind of um, elegant and efficient uh, way computationally. And so what Terraflow does is it offers a platform for people to just upload their own data. They don't need to get their bioinformatician involved. They don't need a magic bioinformatic algorithm. And they get this combinatorics-based analysis that um, uses machine learning to identify the populations that are most different across the patient groups, then reduces that to the simplest combinations of markers that drive those differences and reports, and it reports all that information out in a really usable format, you know, as a, as a PDF um, report, essentially, that can easily be distributed amongst, um, you know, stakeholders who don't need to see a pretty graphic or don't need to try to understand what a Disney means or something like that, but really need to be walked through at a high level um, what the results are. And, um, and so we uh, have developed this, we're in the process of spinning it out from NYU and the student who developed it is a really interesting story too, just really quickly. He um, came to me as an intern uh, one summer through a summer program 
um, decided to uh, come back the next year and was applying to med school the next year and then decided that he didn't want to go to medical school. And he was 97th percentile on his MCATs. He was very qualified. He would have gotten in easily. And he said, you know, can I spend a couple of years in your lab and, um, and, and work here and just learn and do computational stuff? And I was like, yeah, absolutely, come on. And so, um, so I hired him for, uh, for a lab tech position. It's kind of a computational biologist lab tech hybrid. And um, we were doing some work in this area of um, data analysis. And, uh, and he said to me, you know, I have a better way to do this. Um, can I try it out? And I was like, yeah, you can always try it out, but I don't think you're going to succeed. I, I really doubted that he was going to, you know, solve the, solve the problem so elegantly. And he's amazing. He's just, he, he came to it um, and, and developed a really elegant solution for it. And now as CEO of that company, he's gone to um, Harvard for graduate school and, you know, we're um, trying to get the license out from NYU to, uh, for this company that should happen shortly. Um, the uh, and the company has had some good um, successes that I don't want to talk about on uh, yeah. on a recording, but um, but you know has has some you know uh, won some awards. Let's just put it that way. So um, and so uh, so we're you know we're really proud of what's going on there too. So it has traction. There we are up just over the hour. Pratik, thank you so much for joining me today. I think actually I think it's been really inspiring for people to listen to or watch about how you take the confidence to move out of academia and into industry and how cool it can look. I, I so want to sit on the room on the right and I'll just watch you work on the left. It's, it's just much easier. So if you ever come to New York or when you come to Philadelphia for, for Saito, um, you know, we're, we're about, we're a couple hours up from Philadelphia, um, you know, a little short of two hours. And uh, I invite you to come and see, uh, see what, doing science in the community is like, you know, it's, um, it's, it's really, uh, it's such a great vibe here that is, uh, is, is different. And, um, and I, I think really connects us in a way that, that hasn't worked before. And I'm sure being as you are actually based in what was a Pilates room, uh, I'm sure you'll stretch the company to its max. Anyway, on that note, Pratip and everyone for listening to both stars and watching today. Thank you very much. Don't forget to go catch up on the others. Uh, you heard about Gary Nolan. He's there to go and watch and listen. So go and see what else is there. Pratip, thank you very much. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you.